The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Just wave your hand around nice and high in a frantic motion, and we will make sure that one gets to you. If you do not own a Bible, that is a gift for you. A couple of announcements while you're doing that. Um, Financial Peace University will be starting up again in uh, January. Um, we, we've had a guy that's been hosting that and kind of leading that group uh, for a few years now. I, I, I need to get the numbers on it maybe for the next time we announce it, but there's literally been hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that have, have just been released through that. It's a really cool program. So if you're already dreading the credit card bill for this holiday season, you know what I mean? Um, might be a good option for you. So take a look at getting signed up for that. And there's only 20 spots for that. So make sure you look ahead. Um, also holiday services coming up. So no Wednesday services this week or the next week. We will pick back up on January 3rd, we're going to be doing a, uh, a six-week kind of home improvement series that's going to be coming up there. So that'll start on January 3rd. In the meantime, there's no Wednesday night services. And next week, um, as you know, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday morning. So next week, we're going to do our Christmas Eve service as per Sunday morning. We're going to meet here one big, huge service with everybody at 10.30 a.m. One week from now, all family service with all the carols and the songs and the candles and all that good stuff. And then uh, you get to enjoy Christmas Eve with your family and all that kind of stuff. Sound good? Three people. Cool. Well, all right. We were only thinking of you three anyway. So um, awesome. So make sure you do that. And uh, that's all. So Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And uh, just join me in prayer as we, uh, as we start out, would you? Lord, it's an honor to gather with your people, with the redeemed people of God, in the house of God, by the Spirit of God, to hear the Word of God. And so that's what we ask would happen this morning, Lord, that you would teach your people, that your Word would penetrate our hearts, and that you would shape your church this morning. And Lord, I don't just mean like corporately or organizationally, but the people of your church. Lord, may your Word shape us this morning into the image that you would have us to be. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to cover some ground today. If you're wearing open-toed sandals, I would recommend watching out because Jesus is going to step on some toes today. And we're cool with that. Amen? He's going to. You're like cautious, like, amen? (laughs) We like to be, no, amen? Yeah, I like that, that was funny. So um, if I can borrow a sort of modern term, if I will, to kind of talk about the trajectory that this book is going with regards to Jesus' popularity, you might popularity of Jesus as we start chapter 6 in the book of Luke is trending downward. Um, Going through even just Luke chapter 5 alone, we can see some examples of how um, Jesus is getting less and less popular, especially with the religious elite. We're going to use terms, if you're not familiar with them, such as Pharisees and scribes. The scribes and Pharisees in this day are the religious leaders in the culture at that time. They're the the pinnacle, if you will, of the religious hierarchy, if there is such a thing. Um, they're the ones that anyone in culture, if you were to say, hey, who are the really godly people? Hey, who are the people that, that are re- like God really likes them? 
Who are the people that really have it together, the really spiritual leaders? Who are those people? Everyone would have pointed at the scribes and Pharisees, like it's them. That's the godly people. And those guys are not liking Jesus so much. So for example, in Luke 5, 21, look what it says. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Questioning Jesus. In verse 30, they say, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And then in this text that we're going to be looking at here today, in Luke chapter 6, why are you doing what is, or excuse me, Luke chapter 6 verse 2, why are you doing what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? In verse 7, the scribes and Pharisees are watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. And in verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, we need to understand some things and really grasp this so that the, the, um, the heaviness and, and the meaning of this text really, really sinks in. So I'm going to do a little more background work on some things today than usual, but I, I think it matters. I think it's really, really important. We need to understand the scribes and Pharisees were always pushing things onto people. That's what they did. They pushed things onto people. Jesus will say it himself. You'll see in just a minute. They were always telling people, this is what you need to do. If you want to make sure you're in good standing with God, you need to do these things. They're always pushing people. Get your act together. Do this, do this, do this. Jesus's approach is the exact opposite. Jesus is calling people. He's constantly calling people into relationship with himself. And when those two things intersect... When what Jesus is doing comes against what the Pharisees are always doing, Jesus rails on the Pharisees. I mean, goes off on the Pharisees. You go, no, not Jesus. He's the Swedish guy in the robe that we see in all the paintings down in Evangel. He, like, he's always peaceful and calm, and there's like he's holding a lamb. Like He doesn't rail on anybody. Oh, man. He rails on the scribes and Pharisees when they are pushing things onto people who he is calling into relationship with himself. And particularly, he gets really heated when the things they're pushing onto people become barriers, become obstacles that prevent people from coming into relationship with God. This is something that happens all the time. Let's consider an example. Matthew chapter 23. Look what Jesus is doing. He's teaching his disciples, right? And it says in verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Can okay, I think about this? There's this crowd of people there, and his disciples are there, and he's like, look, these guys, and as you'll see in just a minute, the these guys, they're there. So he's like, the, these guys, hear what they teach. If they're teaching the scripture, hear that, listen to it, but don't follow them. Now, scribes and Pharisees in those days, they would have disciples. The rabbis then, they would have followers, and they would call people to take on what was be referred to in that day as their yoke. In other words, their interpretation of scripture, their defining to people, this is what it looks like to be holy. This is what godly people do. 
This is how you do what makes God happy with you. And their interpretation be referred to as their yoke. And he says to them, with them right there, he says to the disciples, all right, those guys, when, if they're interpreting scripture, if they're telling the scripture, you can list that's Moses' law, but don't follow them because they're not doing it, man. And they're just putting burdens on people's shoulders and then they themselves have no mercy whatsoever. They won't even use a finger to move a burden off of someone else. And then, if you want to read the rest of the chapter, and we're going to look at one more little part, it gets way worse than that. Because then he turns to the scribes and Pharisees with everybody there and pronounces all these woes on them. In other words, like he's saying to them, and you guys, watch out. You better watch out. Not the Santa Claus watch out, but like, seriously, watch out. Like he is seriously, sternly warning them like a parent who has told a kid, leave the ornament alone on the tree. This is the last time. Watch out but way more severe. And so look what he says in verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So again, remember, Scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders then, are the people that if you asked anyone in that day, who's the really spiritual people here in this culture, everybody would have looked at them. It's them. See how they act, see what they do, see how they carry themselves. And then Jesus points at the very things that everyone in the culture identified as marks of their holiness and says, it's fake. It's hypocrisy. Oh, they're doing stuff on the outside, but their heart is far from me. And inside they are rotting. They are decaying. There's no life in them. Don't listen. Don't follow them. Don't do what they do. That's pretty strong. Now, in this particular text, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to deal with this kind of hypocrisy, but he's going to do it in two stories through what's called the Sabbath. And what I want to talk about here is give you a little bit of history of what the scriptures actually say about the Sabbath, because I think it's going to blow some stuff up later um, as we walk through this actual story. Some things I didn't even see until this very morning, as a matter of fact, as I was reading through this stuff again. So the Sabbath, the idea of the Sabbath first comes up in Genesis 2, verse 2. Genesis 2 says this, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God creates all the earth. He speaks everything into existence over a period of seven days. And on the seventh day, says he rested. Then in the law of God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, it says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So this pattern in the law of Moses, in the Ten Commandments, this pattern is given to the people of God. And he says, hey... In the same way that God created the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh, you're going to do the same. You're going to honor that Sabbath. God has blessed that day. He has given that day. He set it aside for a specific purpose, and you're going to honor. Part of you honoring God and your covenant with him is honoring this day. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then in Deuteronomy, something gets added to it. And this is interesting. So take a look. Verse 12. 
Observe the Sabbath to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And then look at verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you, keep the Sabbath day. Now, do you see what God added there? Previously, the Sabbath is tied specifically and only to creation. But, but now, what is emphasized is what's actually the preamble, you might say, to the Ten Commandments when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. And so here in Deuteronomy, we see not only is that a day that's been given to us, a day to rest, a day to follow that pattern of God, but he gives us the purpose behind it. He says, on that day, I want you to stop, I want you to rest, I don't want you doing any of this work, and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how I brought you out of Egypt. I want you to think about how you were not a people, you were slaves in a foreign land. You were helpless. There was nothing you could do to save yourselves, and I acted and brought you out. It's as if even that idea of not working on that day is a picture to them that there was nothing they could have done to increase or to improve their situation at that time. So that Sabbath pattern is created. It's, it's recognized, but it's added this idea of remembrance of what God had done for them. That's what the purpose of this day is now for. In Isaiah 58, it comes up again. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going on your own ways, seeking your own pleasure, talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I don't, I don't know if you guys see this. But in each one of these things, the idea of the Sabbath is supposed to be awesome. It's a gift. It's a blessing. He's like, listen, you're going to rest. You're going to rest. And, and you're going you're to enjoy this opportunity to stop and remember how good I've been to you, how merciful I've been to you, all of this stuff. And he even says, and then as you honor these things, listen, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to bless you. You're going to delight in this. Like it. The Sabbath, the idea of the Sabbath is a really, really good thing. And then here's what I want you to think about. It didn't have to be. The Sabbath didn't have to be. I mean, think about it. Why did God create the earth in six days? Is that how long it took? Or could he have just done it in one? His power is limitless. He didn't need six days. And why did he rest on the seventh one? Was he tired? God forbid, no. He wasn't tired. He didn't need the rest. So why did he do that? He did that for us. He created a pattern from the very beginning that said, you're going to work these days. Because remember, in the original creation, Adam and Eve are called into partnership with God to create this culture, to work the garden, to build society and all these things. Then he said, on the seventh, you're going to rest. It didn't have to be. Even the whole idea of like years and 365, like seven doesn't divide even into it. And then we get weird stuff and then leap year comes around. Like it doesn't seem like natural. It's something that God did intentionally for us. It should be a blessing. It should be a gift. 
It's a pattern that we are supposed to live in. Parallel passages to our text here in the book of Mark give additional insight because in Mark 2, it says, He said to them, speaking of Jesus, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now I want you to look at these words and notice what he's saying here. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath itself is not the point. The, the Sabbath itself is not just like, we have to protect that thing. That's not the point of it. The point of the Sabbath would be something given to man to bless and protect men. Not that men have to protect this thing. Does that make sense? You see this right here, right? So this is what's actually there. And so for many of us, it, people would say, then is there an abiding element to this? Because it's Old Testament law. And as we're going to see when we go into this text... Some people would say it seems like Jesus might be doing away with the Sabbath, the way that he's actually carrying himself in this. And so is there an abiding principle? Jeff, why are we talking so much about the Sabbath? Does this even matter to us still today? Are we now New Testament people? Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. We don't have to worry about it anymore. I would say, well, that would become tricky because, you see, it's in the Ten Commandments. It's number four, and there's not nine of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's Ten Commandments. And if you take that one out, you start looking at it like, so then what do we do? Do we get rid of this one? Let's, let's bring murder back. Right? Or, or let's bring stealing back. Or let's, right? Like, like that's not the case. The idea is these are things that God has given to us for our good. The, the reason that murder is said, like we, we're not supposed to murder, is because if you're the murderee, it's not good for you. I don't know if you know that. I know that's revolutionary. You guys are scribbling notes frantically. Murder is bad for me. But that's true, right? To honor God, if a follower of Jesus desires to honor Jesus, it means honoring the Sabbath. It means having a Sabbath. It means not having a Sabbath is sin. You go, whoa, hold on. Like, that's just the optional one, Jeff. It's like rest, and there's a lot to do, and, and that doesn't really matter, and that's legalism. Okay, let's think about it. Is it legalism to insist, don't murder anybody? No, it's good. Is it legalism to insist, be faithful to your spouse? Is it legalism to insist, don't steal, don't covet? Of course not. These are things that are given to us for our good. And here's what I want you to understand as we go into this text here in just a second. Jesus is not doing away with Sabbath observance at all. It is still part of our culture, part of what we should do. What Jesus is not, he's not dealing with the use of the Sabbath. He's dealing with abuse of the Sabbath. And that's a very, very different thing. For, for some of us right now, and th there's all kinds of, I know there's debate on these kind of things. Well, then is it Saturday or is it Sunday? Because in the Jewish culture, Sabbath was on Saturday, and now it's on Sunday, and church people now call the Sabbath Sunday. How did all that stuff happen? That has to do with early church separating their observance of worship from the Jewish worship methods that were already in place at that time. And it didn't even become a legal issue until Emperor Constantine in Rome, he was the first one to make laws regarding the Sabbath. So he actually instituted rules that said, hey, the Sunday is our Sabbath, therefore all the stores need to be closed. And that was even like the, the roots of, if any of you who have ever lived in the South and, and lived in places that had, and still to this day, some of the, what they call them, the blue laws, so like in North Carolina where I grew up, on Sundays, you cannot buy alcohol anywhere until one o'clock in the afternoon. 
And they have it set up that way because they've created this sort of culture or environment that tries to emphasize, hey, it's the South, you go to church here. Like, that's kind of what they do. So they make all the drunks go to church, and then they can buy their liquor at one and get on with their NASCAR. <laughs> that's kind of how it all works. But, um, but so, so it wasn't until Constantine that those things became legalized. And you go, well, then it should it be Saturday, should it be? And then here's what I would say. The Sabbath is a gift from God to us for our good. Don't get legalistic with it like these guys did, as we're going to see. But for, for some of you, that's the first thing you need to be writing down and thinking about right now because we are a very frantic, no-rest society in a lot of places. And sometimes it's good to remember that God loves you so much that he commands you just stop at times and have a Sabbath and rest. And you go, but that's going to stress me out, man. I got stuff to do. God knows what's good for you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to rest. He wants you to think about what he has done for you, what he has pulled you out of, who you used to be, what he's making you into. And he wants you to remember the rest that is in Christ from legalism and from all of these other things and just enjoy, God forbid, a nap. Amen, church? And it is a sin not to rest. I love God, don't you? I love God. That's the easy part about this. The Sabbath is a gift. But now we're going to start talking about what's actually going on in this particular day and age with the Sabbath. And again, Christ's issue is not with use of the Sabbath, but abuse of the Sabbath. You've got to understand that. And so Luke gives us two stories here in Luke chapter 6, both dealing with the Sabbath. Both of these stories take place on the Sabbath and will illustrate what the Sabbath and what really religion in general had turned into and what God does not want religion to be for us as well. But I told you guys I'm going to do a little bit more background work than usual. And some of you are already legalistic, by the way, because you're like, hey, wait a minute. So Pastor Sam's service last week stopped at like verse 26, and you're starting at chapter 6, which means you just skipped half of Luke chapter 5. That's, you're not even honoring the Bible. Like, you're getting legalistic with me right now. But ah, it's context. We're going to cover this really quickly. We're not, we don't have time to break all this stuff down, but it does matter with regards to the actual story that's going here. So I want you to look at the end of Luke chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 27 through 29. In verse 27 through 29, we have Jesus doing more of calling his disciples. Now, we're not spending a ton of time on this because we spent this time looking at what it means to follow Jesus. We looked at the story of the fish and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to notice something. He comes to a tax collector who is the worst of the worst in that particular culture. The tax collector's job was to collect taxes that didn't go to Israel, they went to Rome. And their profit was made by overcharging. So think about it, you're a Jewish person working for Rome, overcharging your Jewish brethren to make sure money goes to the opposing nation, and then patting your own pockets at the time. Super unpopular gig. Like they were the worst of the worst. And Jesus calls a tax collector and says, come follow me. And then look what happens. Verse 29 says, And Levi made him a great feast in the house, and there was a large company of tax collectors. So now we got the whole office is at lunch or at dinner at Levi's house, and others reclining at the table. And the others, like who would the others be? My guess would be, if you're considered the worst of the worst in that culture, you're probably not hanging with the elite of the elite at the culture at the time. And we see a confirmation of this in verse 30, because look, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumble at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
Now look, verse 31, they, notice, they asked Jesus' disciples, but Jesus hears it and he's like, I got this, I got this one, guys. <laughs> look, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But they're not done. Verse 33, and they say to him, well, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, speaking of themselves, actually. But yours eat and drink. This question's funny because they're sitting there, they're watching this feast take place. There's probably celebration. I mean, if you know the story of Levi and who he was, and now he's becoming a follower of Jesus, there's all this stuff happening. And they're like, but, but listen, man, all the disciples of all the other rabbis we watch, like they're wearing the knees out praying and fasting constantly. Even our own uh, followers, our own disciples, this is what we do, man. We pray and fast and frown like a good Christian's supposed to. And your apostles, Jesus, are partying and grubbing. What is with that? And look what he says. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And then he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires for new, for he says the old wine is good. Now, again, we don't have a whole lot of time to go through all the specifics of what he's saying here. So let me just give you the gist of it so that we can understand this background. Because it's super applicable to this story in chapter 6. Jesus is saying, listen, your rigid life, your view of religion and how this whole relationship with God is supposed to work out, you don't get to just take that add in a little bit of Jesus and think that's going to be fine. It's not how it works. I'm going to blow this thing up. What I'm doing is completely different from you. And when the spirit comes, there's this whole idea where he's just like, look, this is about a new heart and a new spirit. This is not about this old crusty stuff that you've been hanging on to for a really, really long time. And then we go straight into Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Which, by the way, you guys all know the numbers and the paragraph breaks and all these things in scripture. Translators are Translators. I haven't seen Star Wars yet. Um, translators added that, okay? So when Luke's writing, he's coming right out of this story and going straight into the next one. This is how this works, right? So in verse 1, look what it says. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So, so here's the picture. And again, this is funny to me. I Silly things make me laugh, but Jesus and his disciples are just hanging out. They're just walking through, through a grain field, and they're grabbing heads off, and they're doing like this with them and eating some of the stuff and dropping the stuff on the ground. And then there's scribes and Pharisees there. You ever wonder, like, where do these guys come from? Like, they're in ghillie suits hiding down under the thing, like, oh, busted. Like, they're just always there, it seems. And so here they are. They're walking through, and they're doing this, and they're like, ah. But let me, let me show you something. Let me show you something in the Old Testament law that they would believe, teach, and uphold concerning the very thing that's happening here. Take a look at this verse, Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. Look what it says. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Well, that's interesting. 
in the Old Testament law, a provision is given that says, listen, if you're walking through your neighbor's field and there's some grain there, you can take some with your hand, you can do the little thing and you can have some, it's fine. Don't go get the combine. Like, you know what I mean? Like the idea is like, we're going to share with one another. We're going to support one another. We're going to look after one another. We're not going to pillage one another and come take all of it down. But if you're walking through and you're hungry, you can, you can take some and you can, you can do this. And this is what they're doing. And yet, what do the Pharisees do? They come and what's their exact quote? Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Something God's given specific and clear provision for them to do. And now it's become the exact opposite. Why is that? Why would they say that? Here's a key thing to understand about these Pharisees. It's really important. Pharisees, and they're still alive and well today. Pharisees are not content simply with the word of God. They need more. They're not content to just trust the written word of God. They need more. And so the Pharisees in this day, they had this like souped up version of God's law that had all kinds of stuff. On the rules regarding the Sabbath alone, just regarding Sabbath, there were 39 principal works divided into six subcategories that explained what is and isn't allowed on the Sabbath. We just covered all of those texts about what the Sabbath is supposed to be and what you're supposed to do, but they've got 39 principal works and six subcategories piled on top of everything that we already saw in the scripture. So you can just imagine these guys popping out of the weeds. It's like a speed trap or something and walking up to the disciples with their little ticket notebook. Oh, you are in direct violation of commandment four, principle 27, subcategory three, paragraph nine B. But this is what was happening. Like we chuckle, but that's literally what's taking place in this very story. They're not content to just stick with the word of God, but they need to add things to it. So what are the things that God added that made them look at this and go, you're violating God's law? There were four violations in this one act that they're doing. But, and, and you'll notice this. Pharisees love the word technically. Okay? So, for example, in their added laws, there was a rule against reaping. You're not allowed to reap. Well, by picking the grain with your hand, you're technically reaping, so guilty. Threshing. It's, threshing is illegal on the Sabbath, according to their added laws. Well, by doing that thing with their hands, they're technically threshing, so guilty. Well, winnowing, you know, where they throw the stuff up and the, the chaff blows away and the wheat, the grain comes back down, that's illegal on the Sabbath. Well, technically, when they're doing this and the stuff's kind of falling, the waste is falling away, technically that's winnowing. And then grinding is the best one. Grinding is illegal on the Sabbath. Well, technically, when you take that unprocessed grain and chew it with your teeth, technically that's grinding. So they're in violation of four different principles that God had made clear allowance for in the scriptures. And they're upset about this. Guys, heritage, woe to us, because this happens still today things that we add on top of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Things that we add on to and we go, this is what a real Christian looks like. This is who the people God really likes. And if you're not, if you don't look like this and fit this category, and if you don't do these things, or if you do these things, if that's you, oh, woe is you. But listen, Pharisees still do that today. And, and look, we all have them if we're really honest. Some of us may be a little quicker to pull the trigger on our pointy finger 
You know what I mean? Like walking around like this, like, oh, if I see someone step out of line, like, oh, draw. Come on, baby, draw. Like you're just ready for it, right? But we all have our things. We all have our things that we look at and go, man, he's a, I, I thought he was a Christian, but there's all kinds of things. Like you can't be a Christian if you watch certain movies. You can't be a Christian if you listen to secular music. You can't be a Christian if you drink alcohol. You can't be a Christian if you send your kids to public school. Or if you read the wrong version of the Bible. Or if you don't get up at 4 a.m. and read your Bible for like three hours before you go to work that day. If you sing anything other than hymns. Uh, if you vote Democrat, you can't be a Christian. Like there's a lot of those things. Some that culture identifies with what a follower of Jesus looks like and some that we do. And here's what we have to understand. Listen, church. When we do that, we are saying, whether we mean to or not, we are saying, I know better than God. God didn't define it all real well. This is what they're doing. God said that you can do that on the Sabbath, or God, sa God said honor the Sabbath, and God said that you can go grab a handful of some grain, but you know what? God has blessed me with wisdom, and I am here to help God out, because God didn't get really detailed, and we need to protect these people and add some other stuff on here, and that's what ends up happening. What you were saying is, you know better than God, and you have more wisdom in God, because trust me, if God wanted it written down, I assure you the Spirit would have moved that pen, and that's what's happening. And Phariseeism is alive and well in the church today. Woe to us. Well, how does Jesus respond to it? Verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those that were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So get the picture here. This happens. The scribes and Pharisees, just imagine, those of you that know the history of it, they're wearing their phylacteries, the little boxes that have scripture in them, maybe the little things on the back of their hand that have scripture in there, so that they're always thinking. The idea was like, always have the word of God on your mind. Always be thinking about it. It's as if Jesus is pointing to it and going, hey, those things on your head, do you guys read those? And if you read them, do you remember them? Because surely you remember 2 Samuel 21. Surely you remember that story where David, your king, your hero, surely you remember how he came in. Remember in the synagogue there was that particular table that had the showbread, the 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And it would stay there for a week and then they would take them off and put new ones there. But the only people that were allowed the bread when, to eat the bread when it came off were the priests. Surely you remember that. And surely you remember when your hero came in and he and his guys were starving and they ate some of that. Do you guys remember some of that? Like, look, the ceremonial law was not intended to become an obstacle that prevents the people of God from having the basic needs of life that were intended to be given to them. That was never the purpose. And it was certainly never become, to become a burden or a barrier for sure. But think about this. I want, this is the, the key, okay? Phariseeism will keep the sick people from getting to the doctor. Because here's what happens. They take the word of God, the word of God, the very words that bring life. Remember, even to Jesus, where else will we go? Only you have the words of life. They take the very words of life and they bury it under a mountain of assumptions and personal convictions and additions to God's word. And what happens is, it's like going to the hospital right down here and putting a whole barrier around the hospital and a checkpoint so that anybody, before they come to the hospital for help, you got to check them out first and go, 
And what are you here for? Oh, I blew my leg off um, decorating for Christmas. Okay, well, that's kind of messy, though. And it's really clean in there. I don't know if you know about this, but in hospitals, we pride ourselves on cleanliness. It's kind of important. So when you get that thing taken care of, come on in. But right now, you've got some stuff to figure out. That's what happens. You're burying the words of life. And you're creating this environment where people feel like, I, I'm not going to go follow God. I mean, if I... If I become a Christian, I just have to frown all the time. I'll never have fun. There's no joy anywhere. Well, no, there's no joy because the joy of God got buried under everyone else's rules and laws. This is clearly here in the scriptures. And by the way, what's the statement he makes, the not-so-subtle statement in verse 5? And then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, hey, by the way, I wrote this. The commandment that you're talking about came from me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he goes into this second story here, Luke does, that gives us even better insight and understanding and application even for our own church. Look at what he says, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Luke is just the master of detail. He's a historian and a physician himself. No shocker that he's using this idea of grabbing Jesus' words about physicians, right? But so Luke's writing this, and he tells us that in the synagogue, he's there teaching, and there's a guy there whose right hand was withered. And I don't, I don't know why he says right hand. I don't know why he points that out. It, it could be, and I'm sorry, lefties. Most people are right-handed, just pure numbers. Maybe he's trying to say that this is something that would affect this guy's life. And honestly, either right hand or left hand, especially in agrar- agrarian society, it's, it's not like he can just use dictate software and still work behind a computer. Like that's going to affect your livelihood. Having one withered hand that's basically useless is going to affect you. But there's something way more significant that we should understand and add to this. Because if you know your Bible, you know that the Pharisees and scribes, our our boys, when they would see um, deformities, birth defects, things of that nature, they didn't just look at it as like, well, that's just part of a fallen world that's terrible. No, they thought it was there for a reason. And the reason that that was there was because of sin. You guys remember the story? There's the man who was blind and and they asked Jesus, like, so who sinned, this man or his parents? It wasn't just that, hey, this is a fallen world where we're not, things don't work out the way that they're designed to. It was like, no, he must have done something to deserve this. And that's why he was born blind. And if he was born blind, maybe he was too young to even sin yet. So it must have been his parents then that did something. So think about how this is going to affect this guy's life. Like, It's not just that it's going to affect his livelihood, his ability to just do even normal things in society. He's not just carrying the kind of things that a lot of handicapped people still to this day deal with, the stares from children as they walk by, things like that. But he's carrying also shame, guilt, judgment, condemnation, which probably means In a culture where everyone loves to point out the sins of others, as the Pharisees love to do, I'm guessing church or synagogue is not his favorite place to be. Because he has this constant reminder of what's wrong with him. And so there's this guy, he's here. And verse 7 says, And the scribes and Pharisees, of course they're there, watched him, speaking of Jesus, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So they're not there to learn They're not there to be taught. They're there for one reason, one reason only. They've got the pointer finger ready, their hands on the hole, like they are ready to draw. 
Just, what? oh, maybe he'll do it. I'm so ready for that. And like I said, Phariseeism is still alive and well today. There's many times that we can listen to a teaching just waiting for that one thing to be said wrong. Or listen to some gossip just waiting for that opportunity to point out. See, I told you they were like that. And you're like, no, not me. Have you ever trolled Facebook or Instagram just looking? Just look, oh, look what they did. Look what they're doing. Pharisees all ya. So here they are. They're not listening. They're just waiting for an opportunity. Let me ask too, why is that guy there? I mean, did they bring him? Is it a trap from the very beginning? Well, verse 8 says this. He knew, verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Now, this is fulfillment of prophecy. If you were with us early on in the book of Luke, remember when uh, Jesus was taken to the temple and Simeon pronounced a prophecy over Jesus as he was a child? Um, Here's the verse in Luke 2. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He knows. And Pharisees would do good to remember that. Because you can pretend to be something that you're not. And you can fool the other people in the church. And you might even fool the people that are the closest to you. But Jesus knows. God knows. He knows our heart. He knows the difference between I'm genuinely seeking to honor God and follow him. As opposed to I'm going to point out someone else's fault because then it makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. He knows the difference in that. He knows when we're acting with self-righteousness. And the scriptures make it really clear. Self-righteousness is probably the fastest thing we should put down. Because you, you can hide all sorts of things, but God knows the heart. But there's some things you can't hide, like a withered hand. Take a look what it says. Oh, and by the way, the courage this must have taken, Right? Like, if, if I called any of your name just randomly and just said, hey, come up here, Steve. I don't even know if there's a Steve in here. Oh, there is a Steve in here. So if I said, Steve, come up here, like, instantly we're like, what? What's going on? I don't want to go up there. What do you mean? Like, I don't want to. How, how much more so this guy? Like, you can fake righteousness on the outside. The Pharisees are really good. You can't hide a withered hand but so much, especially in these small towns in those days. And so to be called up, If he's ever been an example for anything, I would imagine it's not been a good experience. And Jesus says, come here, stand up, come up here. But he comes, he comes up to the front and in verse nine, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? I know it's kind of a duh question, right? (laughs) Except that it's not. Because the idea of healing, they had rules for that. You're not allowed to heal anyone unless it's a verifiable life and death situation. If it is not an absolute, I'm going to bleed out right now, they're like, then just stick a Band-Aid on it and wait till tomorrow. And so he's saying to them, let me ask you guys, what's your Sabbath look like? What's your picture of what a Sabbath should be look like? Does your Sabbath keep people hungry, keep people's hands withered, keep people starving, keep people in shame, keep people in guilt? Because that's not my Sabbath. In my Sabbath, hands get stretched out. 
In my Sabbath, hungry people get fed. In my Sabbath, guilt is released. Burdens are taken off. The rule of love trumps the rules of judgment in my Sabbath. What's yours? And then look. Verse 10, and after looking around at them all, he just stands there for a minute and he looks around. Nobody? Nothing? No one wants to comment on that? No one understands what I'm saying? No one sees the lunacy of leaving a guy in this condition? No one? And they're totally silent. And in doing so, they made it crystal clear that they were more in love with their own self-righteousness, their rules, and all of that stuff than God's rule of love. Woe to us, heritage. Woe to us. What are we quicker to do? Point a finger or hug? Like, what comes easiest to us? Pointing out what someone else is doing wrong? Or loving someone? And now, I should also add, Pharisees love, but wait. They love that phrase, but hold on, but wait. Pharisees love that. Are you going to love people or point? But wait, Jeff, it just depends on who we're talking about. Jesus was just with tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst. He covered all that. Which are you drawn to fastest? Do you want to point a finger first or do you want to love? And then take a look at this. So after looking at him, he said to them, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. The one thing that guy could not possibly do on his own, Jesus calls him to do, and then empowers him to do it as it's happening. He, you can't stretch out a withered hand. Jesus' words call him to something, but they, they give and change life. The word of God is living and powerful and it changes people. And at the word of Christ, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand and he's restored and he's made whole. Heritage family. This is such a huge deal. What do we want our church to look like? What kind of church do we want to be? Because the way we look at things like this and the way we practice things like this amongst our own church culture can either be the kind of church that brings people to a place where they receive life, or we can create barriers from people where they will never come in here, ever. And it's really easy. It's really easy. But Jesus came for the sick, not for those who are well. And too often we create environments where the sick will never walk through those doors, will never engage with us because they don't feel worthy to do it. Because they have this idea in their mind of all these other things that they have to do. And look, if that culture remains and goes unchecked, it becomes supremely wicked. Because look at the reaction, verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They were so in love with their prestige and their self-righteousness and their reputation to the point that when the very Messiah himself is right in front of them and just heals a guy's arm right in front of them, their response, we got to get rid of this guy. This is not what we want in our church. That's what's happening here. When the words and works of Jesus are displayed in front of us, they demand a reaction. And the Pharisees who are demanding that you honor the Sabbath, 
let me just, let me show you something. I, I didn't even see this until this morning, honestly. Like, this was not in the notes. I came in early and was reading through again, and I just, I was like, how did I miss this? I'm an idiot. But listen, the Pharisees who claim love of God's word, we protect God's word, we teach God's word, and we add all this other stuff because we want to make sure people honor God's word and make sure they understand all this. I want you to look at what they themselves were teachers of. Remember the passage I mentioned in Deuteronomy where it adds remembrance into the text? Look what it actually says about the Sabbath. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a what? A mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's like he's winking at him right there in front of him going, do you understand what I'm doing here? The purpose of the Sabbath was for you. It's for healing. It's for remembrance. And it's all supposed to point to me. And now I'm right here in front of you and you want to shut me down because you're holding on to your rules and your self-righteousness. No. That is a beautiful thing. And we have to decide what kind of church we want to be. The kind of church that would welcome that kind of healing or the kind of church that goes, well, we don't have room for that. That's too messy. So heritage, are you okay with getting a little messy? I said dirty in the first service and that sounded terrible. I was like, you should get dirty. Oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> messy. Like, are you okay with that? Because I'm, I'm going to tell you, like, this is a weak spot at heritage. We need to grow in spreading the grace of God to people that desperately need it. We need to get better at evangelism. There needs to be new life in here. So are, are we okay with that? And, and listen, this is why we need it so much. Because if we don't have that new life, if we don't have people that are coming to Jesus, if we're not leading the lost and the dirty and the rejected and all those things, then we forget that that was us. And we become stale and crusty and boring and all of that. We become that stale church. Instead of this vibrant, living, joy-filled. Just think of the reaction differences here. You've got the Pharisees who they see this happen and they're like, this is not okay. Now Luke didn't need to write to us about the reaction of the guy whose hand got healed, did he? We pretty much know what his life looked like after that, don't you think? Don't you think he was like running home to high five people? Like doing push-ups, you know, just whatever he could do. Just like, I mean, just joy. It's joy. We need that church. But they're not just going to walk through the doors of the church nowadays. And in a lot of ways, the reason that a lot of people won't just wander through the doors of the church is because we've piled so many Phariseeism stuff on top of the actual words of God that we've hidden the grace of God by rules and moralistic living and they don't understand it. And so to break those barriers down now, we got to get our hands dirty. Hands. Funny. So I got, I got to ask you, like, are, are you okay with getting a little messy? Are you okay with going to places that maybe aren't so churchy and building relationships, maybe with the kind of people that other people who are churchy would look at you and go, I thought he was a Christian. That's what happened to Jesus. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to you. Are you okay with not looking so polished on the outside because the spirit of God inside you is driving you to lead people to new life? Are you okay with waiting for your polished robes for the day when Jesus is here, but in the meantime, being on board with the mission of God. 
are we okay with things being a little bit messy? With maybe other churches even in the valley going, that church, watch out for them. I pray because Jesus answered to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the call for the church. And I pray, I, I, I beg of you, like, pray about this. Like, go think about this. Like, what does that mean to you? Because they're not going to just come in here. I mean, maybe some if you invite them, but they're not wandering in anymore. But you work beside them. They're next to you at the Little League games. They're at the pub. They're at the restaurant. They're in line for Star Wars with you, or whatever it is that you're doing. Like, that's where they are. And so we've got to do a better job as a church of building relationships with people that don't know Jesus. Not doing the Pharisee thing of pushing things onto people, but doing the Jesus-like thing of calling people into relationship with him. The church is God's plan for spreading the gospel. And that doesn't mean, well, I tithe and the church takes care of it. That's not what that means. It means the people of the church are the ones that spread the gospel. This is a gathering so that when we say break to this huddle here in just a few minutes, you can scatter and carry the good news of the gospel to people with withered arms, so to speak, all over the place. That's what church is supposed to be. And then we come back together and gather to celebrate the beauty of the redemption that God has given us. That's what church is. And it's so easy to slip out of that and just fall into the routines and the traditions and all those kinds of things. And then Sabbath is suddenly not what Sabbath was supposed to be. It's the tradition that we do that makes us feel good, makes us feel like we can come before God because we checked that off on our list. No, no. The Sabbath is made for man. And Jesus is the light of the world, and he's chosen us to carry that light to the world around him. Amen, church? So pray about that. Maybe you're so deep in the Christian bubble right now that you need to go find a place to start hanging out or a group of people to spend time with. I had to do that, and that has been life-giving to me. There's wisdom and ways to do it, go in twos or whatever. I got buddies that I'll hang out with, those kinds of things, but listen— if you don't know anyone or have regular relationship with people that don't know Jesus, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And there's joy to be had. And then join with me. Like, let's pray that this church over this next year is kind of the year thing, right? New resolutions, all that kind of stuff. That's what we do, right? So let's pray that this year will be marked by a different kind of church expansion, not church transfer where people are like, oh, I like the music better there, I like the teaching better there, not that stuff, but by people who are learning about the scandalous and amazing grace of Jesus Christ and who have found a group of people with open arms that'll give them a hug. Let's be that church, amen? Then stand with me and let's pray for that. God, will you make that happen? Lord, will you make your light to shine brighter here, Lord, with us? And I don't mean church competition or brighter than other churches. I mean to those who are lost. Lord, help us. Show us. How can we reach out? How can we love before blame? How can we show people the grace of Jesus Lord, are there things that we even do here as a church that are obstacles to the healing that people need? Lord, will you show us those things and then give us by your grace the power to change them? 
Lord, if there's obstacles in our hearts, whether it's self-righteous pride, or we don't want to go talk to those people, or we don't want to be around those people, whatever it is, Lord, if there are obstacles in our own hearts that are preventing people from coming to your grace, Lord, will you show us? And I pray, God, you would shatter them. And I pray you would do it because we are remembering that this is what you did for us. We were helpless. We were slaves. We were dead in sin. And you have saved us. And so, Lord, help us to remember that you have been given to us that we might carry you to the world around us. And may we, out of joy and gratitude to the salvation you've given us, extend this offer to others. And I pray, Lord, that you would just shake heritage up in that way in this year, Lord. That you would just do a work and draw people who don't know you to you. And I pray, Lord, that it would start with the Pharisees. If there's people in this room who are depending on self-righteousness or actions or any other thing than Jesus, will you show us? Will you shatter those facades? Grant repentance and save. And then, Lord, may we carry that to the world around us. Thank you for this morning, for this season. I pray you would bless everyone here. And I, I pray, Lord, that you, would, that you would pester them with your word and this call to spread your gospel. May it not be able to get out of our minds. And may you, by your spirit, empower us to act on it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people.